Welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. Welcome, Trent. Good to have you on the podcast. You're one of the first people that we'll be interviewing. I guess, in a way, you're you're my comfort blanket, my my go-to interviewee. I think we did a podcast at some point in the past, and we also had you on that. And that's for a number of reasons. Firstly, because we know each other quite well. We've collaborated in in different ways. I think we we share some common ideas and, and themes and I just really like talking to you so any opportunity to do that I kind of jump on so welcome to the to the show I guess we're going to call it sure thank you and it's a pleasure to be here so as I explained to you before you came on what I want to try to do with this podcast and format is to cut out all the fluffy stuff that you would normally do at the intro to a podcast you know you're you're fairly well known in the industry now and You've also been on a lot of podcasts. You've spoken uh, a lot of events. So I'm sure people are familiar with you and your background. Um, so what I really want to try to do is to explore some of the themes that define you, the meta themes that define you and Ocean and, and your you know, your role within that. And then also explore some of your fresher thinking that might be a bit unformed and actually bounce some of the thinking that, that I'm having and we're having uh, an outlier so but it, it would be good to kind of get just maybe a 30 second intro for those of you that, that that won't know you uh sure so i guess the quick 30 second intro is that i've um you know was raised in rural canada uh have done uh two startups in the past both in ai um around designing computer chips and i guess for since 2013 i've been working um very um intensively on blockchain and more recently with blockchain and ai most notably Ocean Protocol. So I guess that's the quick summary. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's exactly what we needed. And I think, you know, one of the really interesting things about you and the time that I've known you as we've been kind of defining our thesis and understanding the landscape is that you were one of the first people from AI that was crossing over into into the blockchain space. And you know, clearly that's gone on to inform Ocean now. But it would be good to understand from you why AI and blockchain or DLT for you are perfect bedfellows. You know, what, what was it that helped you make that connection? And why do you think both of those things in combination are important? Right. So there's, there's probably two levels, uh, the, the broader level and the smaller level. The broader level is that um, AI is one of these very few technologies in the world that has, um, is a general purpose technology that can have potentially big impact. And um, it's not really fully exploited yet. So it's a, a really great lever for the world to help change the world for the better. Blockchain is also one of those. And, um, you know, there's a few others, things like CRISPR and all this, but blockchain and AI are much more IT related. And that's really what I know best. So that's probably why I have gravitated towards um, both very much. So um, that's kind of the, the broader, um, if you drill down a little bit more specifically, with uh, how they intersect. There's quite a few different intersections. I first wrote about this several years ago now, but 
the main intersection is that uh, modern AI in the form of deep learning, you know, these big, big neural networks, modern AI loves data. Um, and so if you're trying to build an AI application that ha is um, accurate enough to ship and make money on, you know, you can't have an error rate of, say, 30%, you know, um, it's just going to be invisible. You need, you know, 10% or 1% or 0.1% or whatever it is for your application. And the traditional way to do that was to spend, you know, two years, five years doing a PhD to improve an algorithm for this. But since the mid-2000s, more and more and more AI researchers have realized what you can do is simply add more data. So it, instead of being a computer science mystery, it's more of an engineering problem. So by just adding more data, you can improve the accuracy, you know, from an error rate from, say, 30% to 10 down to, say, 0.1% or whatever, just as an engineering task. And so then the question is, um, where do you get the data from and so on? And uh, it turns out that a lot of the world's most valuable data, the world's most useful data, is private because the people holding it want to keep it private for privacy reasons or for reasons of control. So um, that's, uh, you know, the intersection is that blockchain can really help to unlock data while maintaining privacy. Right. And and I, so I saw your recent presentation in The Hague, which kind of did a really good job of kind of qualifying and quantifying the, the impact of data on machine learning models. But it, it isn't a, a given, right? There is a, it is a contentious point. I have heard some people say that, you know, just, just increasing the volume of data doesn't necessarily mean to better outcomes, or it, it does, but only in, in certain fields. So if it's... Well, there, there, there can be diminishing returns, but usually the people that are saying that have a hidden agenda. Like, for example, some famous AI researchers, they want to promote their work on symbolic reasoning. And that work is really good. They're really high quality researchers, but that's not to discount the huge impact that simply adding more data is. Right. And, and one of the arguments I've heard is that, you know, more data works if it's in a very narrow form of AI. So I, I think the use case I heard was around um, machine vision and in the context of autonomous vehicles. But it, it's less relevant if you're kind of trying to move towards something that's a bit more generalized. Is, is, is that a fair summary or do you, do you can kind of contest that? So, well, um, I think... It, Overall, uh, AI is uh, basically a, a group of different fields, right? You've got uh, um, um, fields like neural networks, evolutionary computation, symbolic reasoning, all of these. And, um, and then they're solving problems that have often traditionally been computer science mysteries that can't really be viewed in a very you know, pure symbolic sense or pure numerical sense. Um, and you know, these uh, AI tools uh, solve them in novel ways that are you know, less direct, if you will, sort of more soft computing type ideas. And so within those, um, what's really taken off and what's sort of part of the zeitgeist of modern AI is um, neural networks um, that are really, really big, right? Deep learning, all of that. And they're solving just very specific problems in, in regression and classification. A and um, those are, uh, the applications for those are, um, initially it was a lot of computer vision applications. And more recently, we're also seeing a lot of natural language processing applications. So that's, you know, when we hear about startups and the AI zeitgeist, uh, more than 95% of the applications are applying deep learning to typically um, one or both of these applications. However, that is just one small slice of the overall um, field of AI compared to all the other possible, um, you know, AI tools and techniques that are out there. And a lot of these other tools and techniques um, don't need the data as much, right? If you're um, not doing regression or classification, which is really about building models, um, where a lot of data can be valuable, 
then um, it, it, then it's less useful. You know, for example, what I did in the world of circuits, we were building models, but uh, we only had access to circuit simulators, and we are very limited in the budget uh, that we could have to get data from these circuit simulators. So uh, we had to make do with uh, with the data that we had, and uh, so that wasn't you know the startup wasn't more couldn't be more successful by simply adding more simulations because that was you know a very budgeted. So we we did have to find ways to you know make better use of the data. And there's other AI technologies out there that are more about just simply learning from the environment. Think of the world as one big infinite data set. So how do you go around and explore that world, whether it be the actual physical world or some virtual world? So overall, um, it, it does depend. You know, a lot of uh, AI techniques don't think about data. They don't need data at all. But the AI that's in the zeitgeist, that's really, you know, having these uh, apps, a lot of low-hanging fruit, are, are mostly, mostly data intensive. Right. And, you know, I think... Increasingly now at Outlier, we refer to what we invest in and the way that we look at Web3, and we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later, as a, as a new data economy, enabling a new data economy, enabling for the commodification of data. And a lot of that thinking has been informed by you know your work at Ocean. And I know that if you look at how you've constructed the economy that will form around the Ocean Protocol, you know, an increase in the volume of data, kind of unlocking that long tail of data is just one part of it, right? You also have availability, timeliness, this idea of quality that you can curate. So maybe you could talk to, to some of those points as well. Uh, sure. So um, overall, uh, maybe starting with the macro and then drilling more, more deeply, we there's actually already a massive data economy out there, but it's a shadow data economy. So... Um, there are, you know, Bloomberg, for example, he became a billionaire um, by selling these Bloomberg terminals to traders in Wall Street going back to the 80s, right? You know, got famous enough, famous enough to go into politics and even run for president, right? And, um, and you know, buying his way for the ads. So um, that's one example. And so Wall Street actually um, has been using data, um, buying data and using it um, for decades, right? So that's a vertical. Another vertical that uses data like crazy is social media. Um, so Facebook is the uh, most famous example there, and, and they use it, you know, they get people to enter data um, to connect to their friends and stuff, but then they use it in order to sell ads. And so you can generalize social media into sort of the, the ad industry, where it's really Google and Facebook as the leaders there. Um, and Google and Facebook themselves, they're using data, they're using data that they gather, but they also buy data from a lot of other agencies. You know, last time I checked, Facebook was buying from more than 150 agencies just in order to sell ads better. And you can go vertical to vertical to vertical and you'll see these sort of mini data economies. Um, and they're not small, like each one is big on its own, but they're fragmented. So you can go, you can look at healthcare, you can look at um, logistics and transport, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you sum it all up, um, it's already massive actually. Um, and uh, it's already, um, according to the World Bank, um, several percent of the GDP of the world, um, I forget the exact numbers, but a few percent anyway, and it's, it's rising all the time. And so the data economy exists, but it's hidden. We don't see what's going on. It's sort of um, sold quietly by brokers um, and consumed quietly by people who don't necessarily want to know that it's often your data being bought and sold, such as in the case of Facebook. Um, so that's why we think of it as a shadow data economy. There's a lot of money flowing around but it's not serving the best interests, especially of, of the public and consumers. Uh, and, you know, just like the idea of Bitcoin and the broader blockchain industry initially ha and continuing has been about going from a shadow banking economy, a shadow money economy 
to a, an open permissionless money economy. So that's what our aim with Ocean is, is to go from a shadow data economy to an open permissionless um, data economy, one where people, uh, where, that does reconcile privacy, you know, where people have shades of gray of control of privacy. So that's kind of the macro level. Maybe I'll stop to see if you have questions before I drill into sort of like, if you want, I can go into the, the more detailed interactions among buyers and sellers and stuff. Yeah, well, I think what would be good is to, to, to kind of make the connect as to why this is now possible as a consequence of DLT and blockchain. Right, um, yeah, so, so, yeah, happy to. So uh, overall, um, you uh, people have been uh, buying and selling data with data marketplaces in the past, but not in a big way. Usually it's the data is gathered kind of quietly and sold directly by the people doing the gathering to the consumers. So there's not a lot of sort of more open-ish data marketplaces. And there, uh, like mentioned before, the two biggest reasons are privacy and control, where the people doing the selling um, don't really want it to expose, uh, you know, who they're selling to and what they're selling in any big way. So they, they don't really want to put it in the data marketplace. And a centralized data marketplace poses a lot of issues. One of them is custody, right? So just like, you know, a centralized token exchange, we have decentralized token exchanges. The centralized token exchanges have got hacked time and time again, starting with Mt. Gox and continuing to this day. Um, even Binance had big hacks, right? And so if uh, the, whereas decentralized exchanges, um, one of the big things, they don't control the keys of, of people's tokens. So um, it, um, their attack surface is therefore much, much smaller. Um, so that's a big thing. The other thing uh, is, and that's a, that's one of the things that blockchain helps to unlock. Then is basically, um, you know, addressing this custody thing, because if you have a decentralized data marketplace, then that middleman that's connecting buyers and sellers um, isn't holding liability. They aren't holding keys for the data, and so on. They're just basically connecting the buyers with the sellers, and then the buyer and seller interact directly with each other. So maybe to kind of just pause on that, that the the fact that we built all this infrastructure to take custody of digital assets uh, is now all kind of transferable into when that asset can become your data. So um, I know this concept of, of um, bring your own data, but primarily what we're talking about is using this public key infrastructure and ledger technology in, in order to to take custody of and exchange this, this new form of digital asset. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we think of each... Um, uh, data set as its own uh, asset. And then also the typically that's held by a publisher, a data publisher. Sometimes they're called data brokers. And they can, um, uh, you know, sell those data sets as many, They what they're selling is access. So um, from an IP perspective, they have copyright and then they're selling licenses to others in order to license, um, to use that, that IP in whatever way, right? Um, you know, maybe for consumption in order to train AI models maybe um, other reasons. So that's kind of, uh, roughly speaking, a way of thinking about it. There's these you know, data publishers, there's data buyers, uh, the middle men in between are the data marketplaces, right? Um, and then there can be referrers and all that too, and many other actors, but that's kind of the core. But you know, going back then to sort of the, the USP of how, what blockchain brings to the table. So I've talked about custody, and that can really improve the data marketplace side. I hinted at the, the control and privacy, but I can be more specific here. So what you can do is you can uh, sell access to a data set, um, but you, you're not actually selling you know, copies of the data set itself uh, if you don't want. Instead, you can make it where you're selling such that the buyer can bring his AI training algorithms right to the data itself. So, um, and by doing that, th there's human eyes never ever look at the data set. It's for AI eyes only. 
And um, this actually resolves the issues of, of privacy and control because the person who's owning the data, who has published it initially, all that, they've actually never, you know, it's never downloadable per se. Instead, this AI model is being calculated right next to the data itself. So the, the data never leaves the premises. The AI model is calculated and then it's used in order to, um, you know, for, for whatever value add the data buyer has for that AI model. So that's really, uh, you know, uh, really solves this problem because of sort of privacy and control, right? Before it's like, okay, you can either um, not um, make the data available and then no one gets the benefits of, of more accurate models, um, but also you don't have concerns about privacy and control, or you can make it available and then have those privacy control concerns. But by doing this, by bringing compute to the data, then you, you ha can have your cake and eat it too, if you will. Um, you, you get uh, more data for, for better models, as well as address the privacy and control issues. And you know this is with simply like compute containers um, living next uh, living next to the data itself. There's other ways to approach privacy um, as well that are you know coming down the pipe. They're not quite as mature yet as just good old Docker containers. Um, things like uh, secure enclaves, home over encryption, all that. And we're hopeful about you know the, uh, those technologies as they mature going forward. And you know we will be uh, helping to incorporate um, those sorts of technologies into Ocean with you know um, other companies as they, as they develop them. But our first focus is the computer data. Right. And so um, most people, I'd imagine, if, if they're kind of remotely tracking what's going on in, in the web, will be aware you know, Tim Berners-Lee has been recently rallying against, I guess, all of the ills that you've been speaking of in the context of, of the data economy and, and privacy and data custody. And obviously, he's taken a very specific approach with uh, pods. Um, we actually did a, a review, Aaron Van Am is our CTO and, and, and Theo, one of our technical analysts, did a comparison of uh, looking at um, uh, Sovereign, for example, in an SSI context and Tim Berners-Lee's um, Solid. But I don't know, do you think pods and what they're trying to achieve there is complementary or it is it is an entirely different approach to what you hope to come about from when users and that could obviously be a, a corporation or an individual begin to take custody of their own data uh so i think it's mostly complementary um and you know obviously i greatly respect the work of tim berners lee um going back you know for, for decades and stuff of course and so it's mostly complementary i think what you know ocean is is focusing on is a, is a different aspect so that you know um where, where there are opinions on how to do self-sovereign identity and have personal data storage, you know, it can be a sovereign type approach. It can be a solid slash pods approach, and all of those can plug into Ocean. So Ocean is not trying to be too opinionated about these other, um, you know, complementary problems to solve, right? And so this is why Ocean is focusing on really the the data marketplaces um, for price data as well as for the data commons, and then um, the exchange of value around that, right? And so kind of related, right? I've talked about custody, which is really, you can think of custody as, uh, as think of it like a crypto wallet where you, um, but instead of having just custody of, of crypto tokens, traditional ones, you have custody of data sets. Uh, I've talked about um, the, the cracking this problem of, of privacy and control by bringing computer to the data. There's a third one that you kind of hinted at, Jamie, and it's worth mentioning here because it also relates to your question about Tim. Um, and that is data tokens. So um, it's something that we're working on um, quite aggressively now, where up till now we've been leveraging Web3 infrastructure in terms of private keys and the wallets for you know managing private keys. But um, we've said, hey, 
what if a given sort of lightweight token, a data token, is simply an access control to be able to um, download a data set or to be able to um, get access to streaming data over time or to be able to bring compute to a data set? Any one of those three things, right? Static data, dynamic data, and uh, compute for, for private data, basically. So, so imagine where I'm a publisher, I've got you know, my data um, that I've created, maybe some um, location data, and then I mint uh, a, a data token uh, for it, call it location data token, I, um, like basically deploying an Ethereum contract. And then from that, I might mint uh, 20 um, tokens from that, ERC20 type tokens. And then with those 20 tokens, I can um, be holding those in um, my crypto wallet, even MetaMask or something. But then also I can be sending them to data marketplaces for those data marketplaces to be buying and selling. And then others can be, buy, uh, can be buying from there and exchanging and trading and so on. So then you basically got, um, you know, any degree of fungibility you want. I can mint 20 tokens. I can mint 2 million if I want. And, and then people can be buying and selling this. So it's removing friction for buying and selling access to data sets in any one of these three forms, static, dynamic, or the private type data. And by doing that, you know, going back to your question with Tim and stuff and, and um, Solid, it's they, uh, people who have their, their personal data can choose to make uh, aspects of that personal data available for uh, consuming by others in any one of these three forms. And they can do it by, by minting um, these uh, data tokens. And so it's, it's a pretty exciting concept. And, you know, we're in the process of building it and rolling it out. Um, as part of the overall uh, Ocean Protocol offering. So do you think, you know, obviously the the way that we pay for the web at the moment, I say we as a general user, we implicitly pay for the web and the majority of services with our data. Now, do you think that will continue? Is is, is that the kind of, do you think that, that that model will continue except it will just become more explicit and therefore, and you'll have more as the data custodian, you will have more control over the terms of of that transaction and presumably revocability. Uh, so two parts. I, I do see that as time goes on, um, people will be able to have much better, more fine-grained control over their um, personal data. Pro- it'll probably be look a lot like, you know, if you open your, your iPhone to the settings, you, you can see, um, you can swipe um, what sort of permissions you give each app. And so you can think of it like an extension to that. That's one way. Another way to think about it is, you know, you've got your uh, crypto wallets on your phone and whatnot. And in, in that, in, inside that crypto wallet, right now you have Ether and Bitcoin and whatnot. But in the future, you might have um, access to, you know, a thousand different data sets. And some of those are yours and you can send those to others and so on. So um, that can happen. But of course, it has to be a very, very easy user experience for consumers. And it has to be worth their while in the first place. So I we see that in general... There's a lot of directions this can go. We want to make it really easy for people to experiment with different ways uh, to sort of capture value in this uh, Web3 data economy. So the stuff around um, sovereign personal data um, might be one way, sort of consumer level, right? Um, and it also might be around, um, you know, small and medium-sized enterprises. Um, for example, we're working with Dexfreight for building a data marketplace around logistics, um, you know, um, trucks and so on, thousands of trucks. And or, or it could be, you know, at the level of large enterprise, too. And we work with large enterprises for, for their large data that they're just mostly having sitting there gathering dust and even exposing them to liability in case of hacks or government cities, et cetera. So we don't know which of these will pop first. So we're making sure that what we're building is 
general enough um, to use sort of across the board and and easy to use enough. And we're not there fully yet, but we're getting better and better and easier to use all the time. Um, and, and then, you know, where we see um, uh, flames help to pour gasoline in those flames, if you will, to help catalyze things. And, you know, yeah. but it does unlock some exciting new possibilities. Things like, you know, the radical exchange folks, Glenn Whale and all those folks, they they talk a lot about data trust, data unions, and this points to the sort of personal data sovereignty as well. Well, with, with Ocean, um, that can be a lot easier to implement because um, you can have a DAO that's implementing a data trust or a data co-op or a data union. And then um, those DAOs are simply holding um, ocean-generated data tokens. And so it just looks like an ERC-20 token. Looks acts, it is an ERC-20 token, basically. And then they can be exchanged for value. And this could be around, say, you know, you could have 100,000 people buying and selling, um, you know, aggregating location data and then having people in the DAO working for the DAO um, selling their location on their behalf. Yeah, I mean, th- there's two interesting parts to that. So on the one hand, there's the, the DAO element. And I, I know... You know, both of us have been very interested in this space of whether it's a commons, a co-op or a union where you kind of have collective or shared ownership of assets, including data. But one of the interesting things I just kind of want to push on a little bit. So we were talking earlier about the potential for this world where you would have a wallet, you would have custody of tens, hundreds, thousands of, of, of data tokens. Obviously, if we look at parallels with the world as it is today, just in terms of holding crypto assets as they are, the majority of people have deferred to a third party custodian in a very centralized way. How do you envisage the world of custodians agents in this context? Because, you know, having been engaged with the sovereign project for a very long time, you know, that thinking around agent based systems, um, and how custody can, can, can be delivered in a manageable way where the end product is, is, is going to be grandma proof, as they say. Yeah, I, I, our perspective in Ocean is that um, there's going to be shades of gray where from one level where the individuals um, or individual companies, et cetera, they are you know, managing, taking all the effort to do the full control themselves. And there should be really great UX around that. Or on the other end, you could have some centralized um, party playing a full custody role the way that uh, some people use Coinbase or, or Binance. Uh, and there can be shades of gray in between. An important shade of gray in between is delegated custody of data. So um, so just like, you know, an example is liquid democracy, where you have delegated custody of voting in a sense. You, you find people that you know have spent way more time than you to, to research particular topics, and then you delegate your votes to them around those topics, right? Uh, delegated proof of stake for uh, L0 mining as well. You know, I've got... Uh, well, in general, um, you know, the things like Cosmos and so on, a lot of people, they have atoms, but they don't want to be running a, a node in the Cosmos network. So they uh, are just delegating to the existing nodes. And of course, there's only a limit on the number of nodes that actually earn fees anyway there. So um, that's, you know, an example of delegation. But the key thing with liquid democracy or delegated proof of stake is that at any time you can revoke your permission, your delegation. And you can control it yourself or reassign it to someone else. And this is the critical part because it gives you optionality. And it means that the people that you've delegated to, they have to stay on their toes and they have to continually provide you good service. Otherwise, uh, you know, you walk away with your data tokens, with your dollars, basically. So that doesn't, so in that world, there's a spectrum. It doesn't preclude a Google or a Facebook adopting this new paradigm. 
but what it does do is it it changes their terms of service. Uh, exactly. So overall, like I see that it's a distribution, right? But um, right now, you know, it, it, people in Facebook, um, they can extract their data right now thanks to GDPR, and it's actually even nicely machine readable as part of GDPR rules. But there aren't, there haven't so far been compelling alternatives that have um, not only built the technology, but, but solved the empty network problem, right? And so Google and Facebook could be in the future um, holding that data, um, but in only in a delegated sense, right? They've got some access control. But the cool thing is now um, you as a consumer can, you know, go onto your phone or whatever and revoke certain permissions very, very easily, right? And, and, without, and potentially delegate permissions elsewhere. So it's kind of uh, going to be up to the consumer, but at the end of the day, it, it's all yeah, it's about choice. Overall, right now, the distribution is very, very uh, biased towards just a small number of players, but I'm hopeful that it will be much more fat-tailed where there's going to be a lot more providers for various services, whether it's uh, Facebook-style social media or Twitter-style social media or whatever, right? And then um, people can loop in and out of networks um, a bit more at will um, and you, you know, if Twitter um, shadow bans you, for example, like happened to Ryan Selkis recently, you've got alternatives rather than just kind of like, you know, having to deal with um, the craziness. Right. So we're probably three quarters away through now. And um, the danger with me talking to you is that we could go on for two hours and probably not even notice. So what I wanted to do was to, to make sure we cover off a few things. So one thing that's really important that I want to try to explore on this podcast specifically is you know the, the kind of barriers towards web3 now clearly for you uh, as for me you know data is data sovereignty um and a new data economy is is central to web3 but you know you, you built this protocol built this tooling and you know i've seen now you've kind of got these kind of hackathons competitions going i know you're exploring how how grants could be deployed what kind of middleware do you think needs to be built on top alongside ocean for the full vision to happen and um, what applications are you seeing uh, what most exciting applications are you seeing being built on um, ocean today or you would like to see being built in the short to midterm with what's possible. Right. So maybe I'll start with just some exciting applications. We had this data economy challenge that we ran from September until January. And we had submissions from, I think there was more than 25 uh, really great submissions. And of that, we gave prizes to the top nine. Um, and they were a lot of varieties of uh, data marketplaces, ones that were, you know, pop-ups in the browser, data wallets uh, in various shapes and forms, um, supporting streaming data better, uh, supporting very specific use cases such as molecule data, for example, in, in pharma. So those are all quite exciting. And, and we're, uh, you know, our ecosystem team is, is uh, proceeding with, with sort of more of those um, with hackathons and so on. So, th so that's very exciting because, you know, the, the community can teach us and teach each other about um, what's important and so on. And like I said before, you know, we're not claiming to know everything about what this is going to look like. So what we want to make sure is that we reduce the, the friction for people to build things of value. Ultimately, for the overall, um, you know, open data economy um, to be successful or the ocean version of that, which, you know, we're hoping will be the one or at least part of it, people need to make money to be self-sustaining, right? They need to be able to feed their, themselves. And the wonderful thing about making money is that if you're doing well, you're making, you know, taking in more money than you're, you're spending, then you grow. And it's a, a positive feedback loop 
it's a, uh, you know the snowball gets bigger and bigger and bigger and this is you know capitalism in the past but we have to um reconcile this now with the world of of web3 right so we we still need to think about how do we make the overall um ecosystem sustainable and for us part of this is um you know helping to have seed funding for um for projects that are, are good initially this is where things like the hackathons come in but then later on to make it easy for people to build companies um, that are be doing are doing things like data marketplaces, data wallets, and so on in ways they can make money with as low cost as possible, right? So that's kind of you know in terms of your question of what do we see as yeah. the essential components? Essential components is a rich um, set of data marketplaces for various verticals, and you know we're we're doing a lot of work on that to help reduce friction for people to roll out their own data marketplaces. I've mentioned already Dexfreight is one of the lead ones we're working on in the logistics vertical. There are others that um, you know we'll be talking about more as time goes on. Better search and discovery of data sets across data marketplaces. So um, there's going to be more and more work on that. Better data wallets. So this includes leveraging existing crypto wallets that can hold data tokens directly, but then also wallets that are dedicated to holding data sets themselves. And then um, and not just holding data sets, but then also publishing data sets, um, minting data tokens from that, et cetera. Um, and really- And presumably that's the, that's, the, that's the important bit for you around introducing data tokens, because all of a sudden you can then leverage all this existing infrastructure, be it DEX, centralized exchanges or wallets, because you've, you've turned data into a ERC-20. Exactly, exactly. So like DEXs, especially like automated marker maker type DEXs uh, like Uniswap or Balancer, um, they're really interesting to us because they can handle the long tail uh, of tokens, right? There's always a buyer for a given data token then, right? So you have, you know, we can have a million data sets on there and every single one um, it could be on Uniswap, for example, right? And then you can be aggregating these as well with things like uh, ERC-998. And, uh, you know, people can be selling in, in uh, where they lump a bunch of these things together into a single NFT and sell it in OpenSea, all these things. And a lot of the DeFi stuff too, right? You know, we're going to under-collateralized DeFi, but if you're going to do under-collateralized DeFi, you need to be able to predict the, the chance of someone um, defaulting, right? So how do you do that? Well, you need data, Interesting, right? Yeah. So this is uh, going to be super, super useful. It, it, uh, yeah, and as well as um, we're starting to see um, smart contract insurance with the likes of Nexus Mutual. So uh, once again, insurance has traditionally been an industry that is very data intensive. In fact, you know, the, the, uh, someone doing data science and insurance, it's, they've ha- they're called actuaries, and that label has been around for, for a long, long, long time. So um, the world of DeFi, um, it has sort of two levels, right, uh, in terms of the relation to data tokens. The first is um, simply you know, taking everything that exists in DeFi and having a data token version of it, right? Whether it's um, data exchanges, you know, um, whether it's data custody, whether it's data loans, um, database stable coins, all of these. But the second is uh, what I was mentioning where it's starting to use data directly itself. And then you get really interesting feedback loops, right? So things like under collateralized DeFi products and, and insurance, right? So that to me is very, very exciting. And, you know, this is maybe where one of the killer apps will pop out as well. Uh, we will see. But um, this is, yeah, a, a big motivator for us for data tokens. It not only makes things simpler for building on Ocean, but um, all this, you know, uh, great potential with DeFi. Yeah. So that's interesting. And maybe actually is a nice segue into the last topic we can cover off in, in the final five minutes. I know you wanted to talk about, or felt it's impossible to not talk about what's going on with Corona right now. So um, if you look at 
I mean, obviously, the way that we talk about crypto now primarily is in the context of DeFi. It, and you could argue that DeFi has been a continuum since Bitcoin. It's just that we call it DeFi now. But effectively, we've been building a bottom-up capital market, proto-capital market. And, you know, the, the folklore is that that was indirect response or reaction to what happened in 2008. Now, it's interesting you mentioned insurers. Clearly, if you look at what's happening in the world right now, it's not unfeasible that in the way that banks were bailed out in 2008, insurers around the world are going to have to be bailed out. And if you think about all the liability that they have in the system, uh, all the claims that they're going to be having um, come in for force majeure. So do you think that that is the possibility, this kind of collapse of the existing insurance industry could be the thing that uh, creates this requirement for a decentralized instance and decentralized data to augment insurance as an extension of, of, of DeFi? I think there's a few questions in there um, that are kind of coupled. So in general, you know, how much is the world going to be changing? Uh, and there's different hypotheses on what this could be. Some, you know, some people, you know, some some opinions are that it's maybe at the end, you know, uh, three months from now or 18 months from now, maybe it's only changed by 20%. Other people are saying that everything is different for good. And, you know, what what is different um, is also of great op- different opinions. So, you know, with the question around insurance, then will we see, you know, a crumbling of traditional insurance and a rise of, of uh, decentralized? I think it will happen over time. Will it happen in the next 18 months? I don't know. You know, overall, I do see that the the events uh, now can be catalyzing usage of. Um, that, that said, you know, Andreas Antonopoulos was on uh, the Defiance podcast about four months ago, and it was a really great episode. Um, and uh, the, the host of Defiance, um, Peter, uh, he had asked um, Andreas, so like, what is your thoughts about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies sort of taking over um, the the traditional uh, fiat currencies um, sooner rather than later? And Andreas raised something I hadn't heard before, but it really stuck with me. And he said, you know, he, uh, well, first of all, he, no one wants to wish the economy to collapse just so that crypto will be better. Andreas stated that. Um, <laughs> I state that too, obviously, right? But the second Some thing Some people is, do that, right? Yeah. The second thing is, you ha- um, the ma- crypto has to be big enough and mature enough to be able to handle it. And Andreas was pretty confident that it wasn't big enough and mature enough yet. And I'm leaning towards agreeing with that. Um, if you think about gold, it's a $4 trillion um, asset class. Bitcoin, it's on the order of $100 billion, So it's a 40x difference, right? Um, so can crypto, you know, is the lifeboat of crypto big enough yet? And it's something we shouldn't necessarily hope that it is. I think it's better to say we can help, you know, and the people um, who uh, want to use it will, but we shouldn't expect that, you know, the whole shipload of people is going to jump into the lifeboat. We shouldn't be pushing too hard because that that might be too much for crypto as well. Um, we don't know, right? So, uh, but we, we should definitely be trying to help however we can with this crisis, of course. Um, and we're, we're taking steps ourselves that way. But overall, you know, we shouldn't be hoping for disasters just so that um, crypto can help, whether it's a more broad thing like I was talking about or for insurance specifically, right? And clearly this links to, I mean, many people might not be aware that you really catalyzed the token engineering community and you've always insisted upon thinking about 
tokenized systems at, from an engineering perspective in that to kind of speak back to the point you made about being able to bear the load as a system, um, the economic load in, in this context. We probably don't have time to go into much detail on that now, but what I would highly recommend is that um, people search out the token engineering community. We've supported it in a couple of cities, um, but it is, it's one hell of a, a movement now. And if you go along to one of these meetups, the kind of the, the diversity of background and disciplines that are kind of being brought about into this space is, is quite mind-blowing. So I don't know if you want to say a, a final point on what's going on in that community and how people can get involved. Um, uh, sure. So, and also if it's all right, I'd like to just bring up a, after that another point. But on token engineering, um, yeah, I found as uh, uh, we were designing the initial Ocean token that uh, we were flailing, frankly. Um, and so we thought about methodologies that we had used elsewhere and realized that um, the methodology we'd been using for, that I used um, for design of optimization systems, uh, you know, and other AI systems had worked very well. And it also looks a lot like just other more traditional things, you know, define the problem well, um, try existing patterns and, and um, or try to change the problem definition if you can. And only if needed, you come up with something new because novelty is risk, right? And, you know, if you're deploying, you know, $100 million chains, billion dollar chains, um, then you want to minimize the risk, not maximize, right? So you keep the things simple and small. So that's a, that was sort of the methodology we came up with. But also, you know, the reason I, I chose the, the term token engineering um, was on purpose. Engineering implies a very specific way of thinking. I'm trained as an engineer and, you know, we had classes on ethics and all this. And the first thing we, we saw in the ethics class, as well as it were 10 times before that in engineering, was, you know, the collapse of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge in Seattle. And it was because the engineers hadn't been thorough enough to account for oscillations caused by resonance from the wind. So, um, and, you know, that's, it feels like an esoteric thing, but really, like, it was in over a pass that had a lot of wind, so you should be accounting right. for wind. Um, and so, you know, one way to think about token engineering is that it is a combination of theory, practice, tools and responsibility for designing, deploying, um, and maintaining engineering systems, right? And so the responsibility thing ties into um, the ethics part. And that's something that had been, I think, uh, underlooked, underemphasized, uh, sorry, overlooked and underemphasized uh, out, out in the crypto community. People had been talking about it here and there. And I realized, hey, you know, like this has been, this is a staple of engineering. It always has been, you know. In, in Canada, if you want to be an engineer designing bridges, you have to get accredited by a particular institution in Canada. And so um, why not um, bring a lot of that thinking and learning and longstanding practice into the world of designing um, this new infrastructure for civilization, which is blockchain technology, public blockchains. Yeah, I mean, what a, what a great way to end. I, I love that idea about introducing responsibility and ethics into designing into designing these systems. So I'd hoped to do 45 minutes. We've gone over at 50. Uh, there's so many more things that we could talk about. I'll have to get you on again. Trent, thanks for coming on the show. Really good to chat to you. And um, I'll share the links both to you, Ocean, Token Engineering uh, in, in the comments. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Trent. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.